John chapter 1, verse 14, and we've got to dig in, we've got to pick up the pace. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and this is where we're going to focus. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just as a reminder, we know why John wrote this gospel. He wrote it so that in hearing it, we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in His name. That's the whole goal. And if you're going to have a life in His name, you've got to see His glory. And so the, the sermon series stops here with verse 14, but if you want to see the glory of Christ, read the Gospel of John. That's a great spot to start this year. Look at the seven I Am statements of who Jesus is and, and ask God to open up your eyes to see His glory. And so we see with the first five verses of chapter 1, we see that the Word is actually Jesus. With verse 14, the Word became flesh. But we see that the Word, Jesus, is God. That He is eternally the Son of God who created all things. He is the light and life. That's who Jesus is. We have to know the Word, and we spent a full week on that. But we also see that Jesus not only is fully God, He's also fully man. There was never a moment when Jesus did not exist. But what we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus took on flesh. Jesus is fully God and at the same time, fully man. And then we saw two weeks ago that he dwells among us. They drew near. And that was what the message of Christmas was, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his presence makes all the difference. But now I want to get into the second part of the verse. And my prayer for me and for you is that this morning God gives us eyes to see his glory. John says we have seen his glory. The question before you this morning is do you see his glory? Do you see the glory of the Son of God? Do you see Jesus, who he is, and what he has done? as the most glorious thing this world has to offer. That's what John sees. How do you describe glory? How do you describe glory? I think this is, this is a challenge. Um, let's see here. Jason, how do you describe a basketball? Round. Round. What else? Little divots in it. What else? Filled with air. What does it do? Bounces. Right? You can get a pretty good idea of what a basketball is by just describing it. Right? When it comes to glory, when you're talking about beauty, it's hard to describe it. But what we see in the Bible with God's glory is it's God's greatness on display. And what John is saying is, here has come God in the flesh, and we have seen His glory. The greatness of God in the flesh. His name is Jesus. Now, I want to camp out just a little bit here with glory. Isaiah 6, 3. You have, they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Speaking of God, Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for the light has come. Now, that should be sending off signals in your brain right now. The light has come. Who's the light? Jesus, 
All right, the light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the people, but the Lord rises upon you and His, uh, His glory appears over you. Speaking of Jesus. In the glory in the Old Testament, you see it come and go. God's glory come and go with God's people. In Exodus 40, 34 and 35, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Can you imagine meeting in a place like this, and all of a sudden, God's glory just consumes this place? So thick that we couldn't enter it. That's what's being described in Exodus. Later on in 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14, the trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give the praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their services because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Matt Carter, a pastor in Texas, helped put it this way. One could not think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament without being reminded of the glory of God. As Israel marched through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, the glory of the Lord, appearing like a cloud, went with them, regularly descending on the tabernacle. Worship for the Jews centered around the tabernacle and then the temple. But once Jesus came, he became the center of worship. Why? Because of God's glory. Seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord was the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. It's the greatness of God seen visibly. That's glory. Now, this is a scary verse. If you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This is our challenge. This is why I ask that you pray for eyes to see the glory of God. John says we beheld the glory of God, but do you know what? There were other people that saw similar things that John saw, but they didn't see the glory. The crowds, they didn't see the glory that belonged to Christ. The Pharisees, they didn't see the glory that belongs to Christ. So how do you miss it? The same way you miss it today. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, The God of this age, the God of this age is Satan, speaking the ruler of the principles of this air, of this world, of this system. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's a spiritual thing. You need spiritual eyes. Because of our sin, we are all blind from seeing the glory of God. And what does Jesus do? He brings light and gives sight. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The light of the gospel, the glory of God, and the face of Jesus. And that's why John's writing this book. So that you might see the glory that belongs to Christ. And many of you know the story. You know how this ends. You, you saw it with the baptism. 
that God took on flesh and from the cradle to the cross we see the glory that belongs to Christ that when we couldn't get to God he would come to us and that when we couldn't earn salvation he earned it for us that is glorious your heart should be moving right now with affections for Christ that should stir our hearts this morning even if you made it to midnight last night should stir our hearts to glorify God. There was a movie, Rudy. Good football movie, way back in the day. As a matter of fact, this is why we named our first dog Rudy. It's uh, about a guy, not very athletic, not very talented, but worked hard, always wanted to play football at Notre Dame. And he made the team, the practice squad, never got to dress, never got to dress, never got to dress, season in, season out, never got to dress, but he was on the team. Nobody believed him because he didn't pass the eye test. And then finally, his last season, the coach finally decided that he could dress with the team, and he got tickets that he could give to his father and his brother, prove that he was on the team. And the movie just, as a, a, maybe a throwaway line, you see the dad see this stadium. And as the dad, a lifelong fan, always listened to Notre Dame on the radio, finally sees this stadium, and he says, this is the greatest sight these eyes have ever seen. And then he goes to his seat and sits down. You know, your heart and my heart is very hungry to see glorious things. But isn't it amazing some of the things we deem glorious at Holmes High School there won't be one this year but at Holmes High School there are several banners that display the greatness of teams past one saying we were the best team in the state for a certain year and there's a banner deeming the glory of that team at work you may get a plaque right <laughs> employee of the month Showing your glory as a worker, as an employee. Saying you deserve this honor. The Olympics give medals. Uh, there will be a trophy that hopefully the Bengals can win this year. The Vince Lombardi Trophy. Showing how glorious a football team is. Look at the deeds this team accomplished. But it's a glory that doesn't last. And here's my question. This past year... What did you find glorious? And what do you glory in? There's a pastor who, describing the glory of Christ, did a much better job than I ever could. His name is S.M. Lockridge. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Pastor in San Diego. Uh, pastored a church for 40 years. Passed away in the year 2000, but had a sermon titled that's my king describing jesus and i want to read this to you it's a little bit longer so bear with me but i think you'll catch a glimpse of the glory that belongs to christ the bible says he's the king of the jews he's the king of israel he's the king of righteousness he's the king of the ages he's the king of heaven he's the king of glory and he's the king of kings and he is lord of lords now that's my king David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. 
No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine in true theology. That's my king. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the prince of princes, the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You, can out, you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he will have no successor. There's nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Praise the Lord. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and the glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get done with all the forevers, then amen. That's a glimpse of someone who understands the glory that belongs to Christ. That should be welling up in our hearts when we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. There's nothing compared to the glory of Christ, of who He is and what He has done. And you've got to catch a glimpse of that glory. Don't be blind from seeing the glory that belongs to Christ. But you want to know what's awesome about this verse? Not only does it say we beheld his glory, but it talks about two things when you behold his glory. What are the two things that radiates from this glory? Full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. If you had a quarter, on one side you'd have heads, on the other side you'd have tails. When you hold up the glory of Jesus, on one side you see fullness of grace, on the other you see fullness of truth. Without one or the other, we're both in bad shape.
If it's all grace and no truth, we'd be confused. What does God expect? How should we live? What should we do? What does it matter? But if it was all truth and no grace, we'd be crushed. Because we don't meet the standard. So let's dig in here for just a little bit. We find grace, and I think this is important because I think we are afraid of the truth. And, and, and let, me, let me explain. If I had the option, some crazy morning, where I'd have to stand on a weight scale in front of you and the weight number would be up on the screen, I'd be horrified. Because I can wear clothes, I can wear black jeans and try to hide stuff, but the weight tells the truth on a scale. I don't want people to know that. Or, you can use Mike Hall at the Combine. About height, he'll tell people that he's 6'2", but we know he's 5'11 and a half. Because at the Combine, they don't care about being gracious, they care about the truth. And you want to know what is true? God has a standard, and it's perfection, and none of us measure up. And that would crush us if it were not for the fact that Jesus not only is full of truth, he's also full of grace. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 display this. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We don't earn it. It's given. It's grace. Ephesians 2.5, God made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. What can a dead person earn? Nothing. They're dead. It's by grace we have been saved. Ephesians 2.7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. How? Expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Grace on displayed in Jesus. And then just in case we miss it, somehow... Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And now I think, because a lot of us have been in the church for a long time, I think we understand this, that we don't earn our salvation, that we're saved by grace. But you want to know where I think there might be a disconnect? <clears throat> I think there might be a disconnect by who we are attracting as a church. And, and, and just let me talk to you. Who is always around Jesus? Task collectors, sinners. A leper isn't afraid to come up and approach Jesus. What marks all of those people? They're in desperate need of grace. Who comes in our doors to attend a worship service? This is my prayer, and this is my challenge to our church. We've got to be a place where those far from God can see the grace of God. You want to know what's awesome? Tax collectors stop stealing and start being generous when they experience the grace of God. A leper comes to Jesus and is like, if you can, make me well. If you're willing, you can. And what does Jesus say? I am. Be well. The grace of God changes a leper. You see, here's the awesome part. Everybody who asked Jesus for grace, who understood their desperate need for grace, found it 
in Jesus. Why? Because when you behold his glory, you see someone who is full of grace. I think this illustration could help. Do you know what the average cost going to the ER is for someone without insurance? And this is just a, this is just a trip. This isn't any procedures. We're not talking stitches. Average cost, $2,200. If someone doesn't have insurance, there's a good chance they can't afford that. If you get stitches, you're talking hundreds. If you're having surgery, good luck. Good luck. Medicine is through the roof. But you want to know who usually goes to the hospital, goes to the ER? Someone who is desperate for help. And there's a, an act, I forget the, the name, but legally, hospitals have to help those who are having an emergency crisis. Doesn't matter on who's footing the bill, they'll figure that out later. That priority is helping the patient. But you want to know what's interesting? Somebody's going to foot the bill. You want to know what's awesome when it comes to Jesus? The, the sinner who's in desperate need of forgiveness comes to Jesus, and Jesus isn't like, well, this is going to cost you, and you don't have enough in your savings to even start paying this bill. He doesn't look if you have insurance or not. You want to know why? He knows you can't earn it. He knows you'll never be able to pay him back. You want to know why? Because he's the one that pays the bill. And so when you go to Jesus and you ask for grace, he's already purchased it for you. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done. When you go to the one who is full of grace, you'll get exactly what you need. And all of us in the room are in desperate need of grace. I think the, the prodigal son is a, a powerful story about the grace of God. You have one son who doesn't deserve anything from the father. said, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I'm leaving. He goes, spends it while living, goes broke. He's eating the food given to pigs. He comes to his senses. He's like, I'm going to go back to my dad. He's honest with himself. He, he comes to truth, but now he's going back and saying, maybe he'll let me be a worker on the farm. And it says, while he's still a long ways off, the dad sees him and he runs to this son. And the son experiences grace. He's transformed by that grace. But that's not how the story ends, is it? Who hasn't been transformed? The older brother. Who's complaining, you've never given me anything. Isn't it funny? What grace does to someone's life? The Pharisees were the ones that had it all together. They looked the part. They wore the right clothes. They went to the prayer times. They were in the right spots at the right time. They were supposed to be the ones closest to God. But you want to know what they didn't understand? They didn't understand their need for grace because they thought they met the standard. And you want to know what Jesus tells them? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And he uses the illustration of a doctor. Those who think they're healthy don't go to a doctor. I've come to seek and to save the lost. You know the scariest spot to be? Is sitting there thinking you have no need for grace. That is eternally wrong. All of us in the room don't meet the standard. And we are in desperate need of grace. And the good news is, 
When you run to Jesus, you run to one who is full of grace. Not only is he full of grace, though, he's full of truth. And we'll fly through this. Um, truth that, that God keeps his word. All the promises find their yes in Jesus. All the way back to Adam and Eve. God said he's going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent. Well, that's found in Christ. In him is the fullness of truth. Abraham, we're going to bless the nations through you. How does that happen? How do we bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham? Well, it's through Christ. David, you're going to have someone on your throne who's going to rule forever. King will know no end. Well, how does that happen? How does God keep his promise to David? Well, it's through Jesus. But not only does he keep his word, he also keeps it real. Jesus shows us how to live, how to believe, how to think. Um, back in the day, I watched a little wrestling. And there was a guy named The Rock. And The Rock would ask somebody their name, and then they'd start to say their name, and he would say, it doesn't matter what your name is. Right? Well, here, this is very important for where we are today. What's your view of marriage? Doesn't matter. Because Jesus shows us the truth about marriage. What's your view on gender? It doesn't matter. Jesus shows us the truth on gender. What's your view on giving? doesn't matter. Jesus shows us the view, the truth on giving. What's your view of salvation? It doesn't matter. Jesus shows us the truth about salvation. You take everything in life of what you believe and what you do, and you line it up to the light of Christ because he is the truth. And we keep going. I'll use Balin as an example. Now listen, don't ask her to make it because I don't know if she could do it two times in a year. She made banana pudding last night. Now she had a cheat code. Rachel Ball makes the best banana pudding that I've ever tasted. And Balin came home with a lot of confidence. And instead of trying to stay up late, you've got to figure out something. So we decided we're going to do a little cooking, and Balin said she wanted to make banana pudding. She had the recipe, and she knew how to do it. Now, as someone who cannot make banana pudding, never tried to make banana pudding, but have tasted several banana puddings, I didn't have all the confidence in the world in Balin. But you want to know what? She had the recipe. She had the truth. And I just come in and just check. I'm just checking over her shoulder. She's got the mixers going. She has the vanilla wafers laid down. I go, ah, you might want to put some more. Dad, I'm following the directions. She stuck to the recipe despite all of my annoying suggestions. And you want to know what happened? One of the best banana puddings I've ever tasted. Just stick to it. That's what I want to be. The, the world will come and go with what's right, what's wrong, what's the opinion of the day. Man, how do we know what to do? We've got to stick to the truth, and his name is Jesus. And I, I gave you with the, the Exodus passage, it's a funny thing in the Old Testament when God's glory shows up. It says, now Moses, this is Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent meeting outside the camp. Outside the camp. And, and it was an amazing thing. Moses would go to this tent. God's glory would show up. He returned to the people, and his face was glowing with God's glory. And it said his brother and the people were terrified. They ran away, and Moses had to say, Hey, guys, come on back. 
It's just me. Isn't it amazing how God's glory transforms people? In that same chapter, as God's glory descends on the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, it says that the people worshipped. And then Moses asked for God to show him his glory. And it said that God's goodness walked before him as he hid Moses' face in the cleft of the rock. And it says as Moses saw the greatness of God, he bowed down to the earth and worshipped. God's glory will transform your life. You'll be able to worship the one who is glorious. But that's not all you see in this chapter. I think what you see, you see the need for truth. We love, and listen, I'm learning this, going back through the processes of raising up a daughter who's hitting one and a half. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And I can get on Dia. She doesn't want to be told what snack to eat what to wear some days are better than others but you want to know what her dad doesn't want to be told what to do either isn't that crazy you don't want to be told what to do but you want to know what we desperately need we need God to show us the truth and tell us what to do and you see in this passage in Exodus God gives the law the ten commandments to the people and he says hey all you got to do is obey it this is, how you, this is how you were created. This is how you'll best operate. I love you so much, I'll show you the best way forward. All you got to do is obey it. Truth is to be obeyed. But you want to know what our challenge is? We can't keep it perfectly, can we? All of us in the room have missed the mark. Some of the people thought they met the commandments, and Jesus said, well, if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. Well, I haven't cheated on my wife. Well, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he shows us how far we fall. You want to know why? Because when you come to grips with the truth, you can experience grace, and you'll see how glorious God is. He had to go outside the tent to meet with God. You want to know who went outside the camp? In Hebrews... Chapter 13, it says that Jesus went outside the camp. What happened to him outside the camp? He was nailed to a cross. You and I can enjoy the presence of God, not because we went outside the camp, but because Jesus went outside the camp. And on the cross, he purchased for us grace upon grace. That is glorious. Amen.